Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on Feral Audio. Go to feralaudio.com and click Shop Amazon to shop through their Amazon portal. Proceeds support this and other Feral Audio podcasts. started our band Grails, I really wanted to know more about the history of everything that came before us because I felt humiliated in advance. I knew that there was a lot of shit that had been done that I had no idea about, and I didn't see how there was any way I could release records if I didn't know what came before me. It just seemed like uh, too fast of a highway to embarrassment. So I dove in, eventually really developing a firm addiction to soundtrack work and composers because I realized that these guys were the ones truly getting away with murder. I mean, especially in the case of Morricone, who really had ultimate and total license in ways that other people didn't, but... The concept of being able to make a song where it basically sounds like you've grabbed a traditional Japanese koto guitar and thrown it in the hands of some random stagehand that's just hammering away at it, making total discordant noise, but doing it for effect in the right scene when the schizophrenic killer finally shows his face comes down out of his tower for that thing to be congruent with what's on the screen and to understand when to break the rules that just freaked me out I was like good lord this is maybe what I had inadvertently dreamed of being able to do being able to to break any rule to be able to do anything I want and as a kid I foolishly thought the world would let me do that I very quickly got slapped down but <laughs> looking at the history of people who found their way into a career making soundtracks in the 70s especially during the the surge of independent cinema 
Then I really got high off it. I was like, good Christ, this is the secret trove of total freedom in music. Listening to the genius of Ivor Slaney. Probably his real name, but a perfect name for some sort of freakish genius that understood the internal sonic world of what it would be like to be the hunchback of Notre Dame or something like that. He was only really known behind the curtain in the 50s in the UK for making a lot of. Music for TV, mood pieces, and hammer horror films. This stuff I'm playing comes from a reissue you can buy relatively easily called Terror and Prey. And it just sounds like an actual madman has gotten his hands on the various instruments in the studio and is actually communicating a form of... uh, misanthropy and deformity in the music it's just too dark to be real to be frightening but one of the weirdest angles is to just out sleaze the listener and that's where you get into this whole corner of sleazy listening and songs that put you at disease they lull you but kind of poison you at the same time with a certain greasiness Since we're already entrenched in the suspense zone, let's keep it there with Cannibal Cannibal for Rocks. rocks. 
something about the grimy wrongness of it all. The slick music mixed with like the flawed, fucked up amateur films, or maybe it's like super sad music put to really horrifying, cheap, bloodlust stuff. It's always like just something about the juxtaposition that hits the frequency. For me, it's like weird old films about Adam and Eve, like something about like really shitty, overly saturated Technicolor amateur versions of Super 8 films about the story of Adam and Eve. The trashy stuff, the heights of the amateur stuff in the 60s is so much more beautiful than anything anyone has done afterwards with a good budget. Just pure intention and the will to make something kind of interesting for the sake of it, but clearly not being able to even consider the larger market when doing it. And I don't think that's like a snobby thing to be concerned with. I don't think it's some sort of elitist, bizarre, fetishistic thing. I think it's just when you hit play on something and it moves you in this way that it's sort of private. There's a strange feeling like you may not have seen it or you weren't supposed to see it. This isn't entertainment. This is a different thing. out of a very unpopular film called Slime City. Kind of your typical people are melting in New York City kind of shit. I think it proves that you don't have to be Morricone and classically trained to create a sense of disease, a true pure sense of disturbance. But let's go back further to the beginning of semi-independent cinema to the trip back when a lot of the stuff was really getting launched and kids were sort of turning on the TV and realizing that for the first time there were people on drugs on the TV and they were called the birds.
That inserts you into a pretty strange inception point for American culture. The electric flag led by Mike Bloomfield with drummer Buddy Miles, later to play with Hendrix, made their first recording for the movie The Trip about LSD, written by Jack Nicholson, starring Peter Fonda, directed by Roger Corman. 1967, I mean, you're right at the base of the big fork in the road and the explosion of the underground, something that probably always existed but is debatable if it was known about on any greater level outside of the people practicing. That's a weird thing to think about. So there was a secret society before and now... There's an explosion, a celebration of occult knowledge or of what was thought to be subversive thinking. Some of it was, some of it wasn't. But whatever it was, the world that we know it now came out of it, which is debatable if that's good.
one of my favorite songs to DJ because of its sort of proto glass candiness. But once you listen to the lyrics, you realize what a nightmare the song is portraying in the house at the edge of the park. The movie that's like a, a very ultra-violent sort of knockoff slasher. But the music makes it more interesting because the juxtapositions are way more haunting than just a straight-up slaughterhouse situation. It doesn't seem hard to understand that maybe within the creases of freedom offered to independent filmmakers then, some pretty sick shit was coming through, especially the male unconscious. I'm sure it's case-specific, but I can't tell if... The filmmaker himself is usually a complete conscienceless sadist or if he's just trying to meet some imagined market. Maybe humankind will always objectify each other in the same obvious, painfully cliché ways. was David Hess who played the main role of the villain in the house of the edge of the park and also somehow recorded all shook up before Elvis 
He had a pretty complicated life and was heralded as a cult hero at the very end uh, before he died pretty recently, actually. But we don't have to focus on horror movies. Let's turn over to a bizarre record I got for probably six bucks called Honk. It is a surfing soundtrack. It's not one of the ones that is cool or people will talk to you about. But it has like three really sad, beautiful songs that are just, I don't know, when I'm drunk DJing, I tend to reach for them. Chilling, got a little pavement vibe. You can almost hear uh, Steve Malcolmus rapping over that one. Um, I sound more animated than usual. Uh, maybe it's because Honk's story this is the name of the band, embarrassingly enough, um, is not as sad as it, it would seem as the drummer went on to join the Kenny Loggins band, who soundtracked Caddyshack and Footloose. What? Oh, he's the full-time drummer for Chicago since 1990. Anyway, you know, apparently Five Summer Stories, which was the surf film that, that this song is from, was like the regeneration of the surf documentary movement, supposedly. That's what the internet has, has told me. Seems hard to believe, but it says here they toured with the Beach Boys, Jackson Brown, Chicago. I mean, clearly Honk was 
jamming away looking for the secret lost chord while babies were being made all over this depressing country. We've accidentally found ourselves in a classic zone. Because, oh, how are you not going to cover some sort of Tangerine Dream? You get to be called a total master when you've opened the book on a sound. And you virtually close the book on it, too. Because the sound is so incredibly distinct that you can't mistake it for anybody else. And you never will till the end of time. So that's pretty fucked. But more fucked is that the Risky Business soundtrack was never actually released. I don't know why I don't hear more nerds up in arms about this, but, you know, the one they released is the one we saw growing up, the one with the Bob Seger song, and the fucking Tom Cruise in his socks scene. That piece of shit was like... This summertime water slide garbage piece of plastic. But then 
behind that was this amazing full soundtrack of like Tangerine Dream at the the height of their powers, which is so insane that no one's ever held that in their hand. I don't get that at all. I mean, besides the fact that money rules everything and they were selling so many fucking copies of the little Tom Cruise with the shades down piece of shit. I just can't believe that they never thought that still no one has never thought to release the fucking soundtrack. I mean, obviously there's some contractual shit to do with Hollywood that has fucked it up. But anyway, this risky business soundtrack does not play games. was so young when Risky Business came out that I'm sure I must have turned my head away for those Rebecca De Mornay scenes on the chair and in the train and all that stuff. I, it was just too much. Like, I couldn't take in that, that amount of unbridled sexuality, but uh, the soundtrack didn't really help. It kind of made me feel like I shouldn't be watching this. I very distinctly remember being in Miami when Fast Times at Ridgemont High first came on and my dad had passed out. And with one eye off to the left, I would watch his his sleeping body. And then with one eye off to the right, I would watch the TV screen. I definitely felt a sense of some form of guilt of being able to see kids out there in the world being free and doing whatever they did I remember his girlfriend's son would come home and he was like 18 or something and he would go out dressed in a suit kind of like golden LeMay looking suit in the 80s and he would go dance all night and he would never come home and he seemed to have like a sweaty kind of confused pallor to him 
he was probably living less than zero. I had absolutely no idea whatever he was up to, but that world seemed so scary and sad and strange. I think just because you start to perceive that at an older age you become left up to your own devices and there's no protective shield and you're just floating freely out in space. There's something about it that was strangely sad. I don't know why. with Simeon from Silver Apples like almost 10 years ago. I think we were sitting in a green room or outside of a club and I just said something like, were you building off of the German music at the time? Were all these bands just building the language of, of like early exploratory synth music together? And, and he just looked at me blankly and was like, I never heard any of these bands. I had no idea they existed. So there's a sense that it's just a hundred monkeys thing. There was just something in the air. And Tangerine Dream just followed the pulse of something they felt in the soil and just followed technology like a divining rod into their sound.
the inception point is always the most interesting. It's always the most fruitful time. I don't know why the fuck it happens. It's fucking fascinating. It's just insane that the first time someone sets their hands on this brand new instrument, that the most interesting exploratory stuff comes out of it. And then from that point on, people start to water it down because they somehow believe that there's some guideline that unconsciously must be followed, I suppose. I guess you could say that's one of the central malfunctions of the history of science, you know, is the the bottlenecking and the conformity that seems to come from new discoveries somehow. It's like growing backwards. The more we grow forward, somehow we're always devolving. <sighs> Let's take it full circle back to Ivor Slaney one more time with all this in mind. Let's try not to go back to Tangerine Dream on the next soundtracks episode. But that means we can close out with them. So, this is Green Desert. A lot of people don't uh, remember this one. The power of a good soundtrack is that it establishes a unique identity, usually with particular assortment of sounds like the zither and the third man's really famous one or the symbolum in the empress file real famous like identity establishing devices uh but tang dream were of the few legendary people to put their stamp on films where you knew who it was every time and yet they were pretty good at separating the films so that each one had a certain character to the sonic palette anyway let's go out with green desert (laughs) 